This is episode number 55 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I'm your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the bi-weekly program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. Unlike the corporate media, we at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised. As always, welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at individual, the number one pod. That's individual, the number one pod. As is always the case, lots to get to, but I want to start with a a topic that may not directly involve Donald Trump, but certainly indirectly does, although you could make an argument that uh, for a lot of people, including myself, it relates to his greatest achievement as president of the United States. And what I'm referring to is Brett Kavanaugh, being uh, approved as a Supreme Court justice, despite by far the most contentious confirmation battle in Supreme Court history, one which I have to say, as an obvious critic of the president, no other modern president would ever have stood by Brett Kavanaugh through what he went through during that process, specifically with the multiple allegations of various forms of sexual abuse. And for that, I have always given Donald Trump credit. Uh, He did it mainly because he felt it was in his self-interest to do so. That's pretty much the only reason why Donald Trump ever does the morally right thing. But he that was one of the few situations where he did fight, as he says he's going to, against political correctness, against the media for something that was, in my view, good. Because I think Brett Kavanaugh got railroaded. I think the allegations against him are exceedingly lacking in credibility and that it was a political hit job. And he deserved to be uh, confirmed to the Supreme Court and that it was a good thing for the country that he was. Now, I actually wrote at the time many columns defending Brett Kavanaugh. One of them was not defending his demeanor during that confirmation process, but I gave him some slack because he was enduring a kind of torture at the time that no other Supreme Court nominee ever had, even Clarence Thomas. And so, while I wasn't real thrilled about that, uh, I I always felt that in the end, uh, the right thing was done. It was an an embarrassment to the country that this we even had to go through this, but that thanks to Trump sticking by Kavanaugh, Uh, The right thing was done, and he deserved credit for that. Well, what's been interesting about this story since it happened almost a year ago, I guess now, is that here's here's what's interesting. I believe, and other people certainly on my side of the political aisle would agree with this, that the case against Kavanaugh has weakened considerably since even that confirmation battle. For instance... Uh, Christine Blasey Ford has done a few things that I think are consistent with somebody who was looking for the adulation, uh, being part of award ceremonies that she had no business being a part of. Uh, Also, we have uh, the situation where her lawyer very recently was quoted publicly on tape saying that her part of her motivation for coming forward was to prevent Brett Kavanaugh from potentially overturning Roe v. Wade. Now, that to me, 
uh, shows an awful lot about what was really going on here. Wait, hold on. Wait, wait. We were told this was totally non-political. We were told that it was a pure coincidence that Christine Blasey Ford just happened to be a, uh, a San Francisco leftist in academia. Just a coincidence. By the way, just a coincidence that she, she erased all of her uh, Facebook postings just before she became an accuser, which would show her uh, very left-wing political views. That was all just a coincidence. Well, her own lawyer acknowledged that that's not the case. Then we have the story, which the mainstream news media ignored, uh, regarding the fact that, uh, how weird is this? Brett Kavanaugh's dad and Christine Blasey Ford's dad are members at the same exclusive golf club in Washington, D.C., and guess what? Christine Blasey Ford's dad apologized to Brett Kavanaugh's dad and told him, quote, I'm glad Brett got confirmed to the Supreme Court. Really? I, I love liberals. Liberal, liberal reaction to that was the only explanation is that Christine Ford's dad is such a hard right wing conservative that he didn't care that his his daughter was almost raped as a teenager because uh, he wanted Brett Kavanaugh on the court. Really? Come on, people. You cannot be serious. The only way to rationally interpret that is he's embarrassed because he knows his daughter at the time. He knows his daughter meant, never acted like anything like this happened, never mentioned anything like this happened. He probably even knows, this is my speculation, uh, that, uh, it's that she went to therapy to try to fix her marriage, and all of a sudden, in therapy, many, many, many years later, all of a sudden this story comes out, and the story doesn't make any damn sense. The story is 100% consistent with a made-up memory in therapy, which is why there's no date, why there's no place, why she doesn't know how she got there or how she got home, which would have been at least as traumatic as the actual event if it had happened. Because I I went to school at Georgetown, spent a lot of time in that area, getting from where she approximately said this was to her home as a teenage girl with no driver's license, no money after, you know, allegedly it wouldn't even have a, any money on her because she was at a swim party. That would have been a nightmare of epic proportions you would have remembered. And, and yet she has... No idea how this happened. None. And, and liberals, again, never understood why that was so important. I, I, I kept saying that at the time, and people would say to me, what, well, but John, I mean, how could you possibly remember that? No, 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 no. You're, 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 it's not, I'm not suggesting that she has to remember every single aspect of the story. She would have some concept of how she got home because that would have been incredibly traumatic. And more importantly, when the only the only evidence we have she told this story was in therapy, and I know a lot about how therapists work because I've done work on this in other cases. Therapists suggest memories. They start to manipulate those memories. And Ford is someone who, by the way, um, has done work in the uh, realm of repressed memories, even had a repressed memory expert living in her house, renting out part of her house uh, as an office space. I mean, so the, the circumstantial evidence here that this was all a therapy-created memory is, frankly, overwhelming. Uh, so I don't believe that Christine Blasey Ford was ever 
sexually molested by uh, Brett Kavanaugh with a friend in the room, which is which is the always been the part that immediately I'm like, really, really. Uh, you know, having been a prep school kid like Brett Kavanaugh, I went to a, a Catholic all boys prep school. Uh, he, he went to Georgetown Prep. I went to Georgetown University. I know a lot of guys in Georgetown Prep. These are not guys that would, uh, t- in the 1980s, would say, "Hey, Joe, want to come with me and rape uh, Christine?" I, 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 what? what? Come on! Can we, uh, th- th- it's a fantasy. It's not literally a fantasy. It's it's an imaginary story. It's uh, although some people might think it's a fantasy, not me. Uh, but I digress. The reality here is. Ford's story in a rational world has largely fallen apart. And so now the media has a problem. The media can either just pretend that never happened or they can rally and they can circle the wagons and they can try to uh, pretend that, you know what, Kavanaugh really was guilty. We just couldn't prove it in time. And I've been kind of uh, surprised. I've never mentioned this, although I should have. I've been kind of surprised that up until yesterday, the news media has largely been, you know what, uh, this is one of those crimes better left unsolved, really. We're just going to pretend that this never really happened. Uh, we took our best shot at Kavanaugh. We, we shot and missed. We almost got him, uh, but we didn't get him. And so we're just going to move on. Well, that changed yesterday. Because there's a new book coming out by two New York Times reporters, and so they they published a story in the New York Times. And the liberal reaction to this story is, oh, my gosh, we've now proven not the Ford story. See, this always is hilarious to me. The, The first allegation has to be rock solid for you to believe any further allegations that come about because of the first allegation, Right. That's just basic logic. So the Ford allegation is what facilitates a couple of other stories, one of which is the story of Deborah Ramirez, who who does that's the post I almost said she alleges. She doesn't allege. That's the part that's so crazy about this. She does not allege that Brett Kavanaugh at a party at Yale University uh, dropped trowel and stuck his penis in her face she has no strong recollection of even what happened some night uh, in, a, in a drunken party at Yale something apparently happened somebody apparently did something totally inappropriate to her but she has no direct knowledge that it was Brett Kavanaugh and over the years and it's been now 30 35 years since this allegedly happened. Over the years, this has become a topic of conversation on email chains with Yale graduates from that class. And it is my belief, it is my belief, having looked at this story very carefully with an open mind as opposed to the closed minds of the, the liberal media who want this so desperately to be true, that everything we know about the story, and to be clear, the New York Times is now saying, well, we now have all these people who say they remember this incident, and the FBI never fully investigated it, and we can't get the records, and, uh, and this is outrageous because this story seems credible to us. Really. Uh, l- let's see what you don't have. 
Oh, by the way, there's also now a second accusation of an incredibly similar episode by somebody else, which I'll get to in a moment. But so the, 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 what I believe has happened here, everything we have is consistent with the following. Something happened to Deborah Ramirez at Yale. She's drunk. Everybody around her is drunk. Okay, so we've got a bunch of drunk people 35 freaking years ago. Okay, <laughs> right there. We're, we're talking Bigfoot sighting, right? That, that's what that's where we are. We're, we start off at Bigfoot sighting. She doesn't know exactly what happened and she cannot identify Brett Kavanaugh as having exposed himself to her. Now, we have absolutely no evidence that anybody identified Brett Kavanaugh at the time of this episode as being the perpetrator of having exposed himself uh, to her. But over time, and I'm talking many, many, many years, I'm sure that this episode was talked about a lot among people who were there or who were in that class at Yale because this, obviously, if anything like it happened, would have been a topic of discussion. Now, Kavanaugh... The New York Times takes out of context Kavanaugh saying that if this had happened, this would have been the talk of the university. Well, their argument is, well, Brett Kavanaugh lied. It was the talk of the university, and here's the evidence that it was the talk of the university. You're leaving out an incredibly important part. Where's the part about it being the talk of the university that Brett Kavanaugh did this? That doesn't exist because it is my view that Brad Kavanaugh's name was not attached to this story until many, many years later, well after he's a right-wing hero, maybe not even until he's named as a Supreme Court nominee, but certainly after he becomes well-known within right-wing circles. you got a bunch of liberals from Yale who have been discussing or referencing or have in their memory what is essentially an urban legend of this episode that occurs at Yale University. And over time, and with their political inclinations screwing with their memories, and maybe that's the most benign interpretation of what's really happening here, you have people who suggest in an email chain or in a conversation, hey, wasn't that Brett Kavanaugh? Wasn't he the guy that exposed himself to Deborah Ramirez? And the other person who's probably a liberal, because they're all liberals from Yale, they go, yeah, yeah, I think it was Brett Kavanaugh. Let's ask Susie if she thinks it's Brett Kavanaugh. Well, once you have a couple people starting to suggest that it's Brett Kavanaugh, and they all want it to be Brett Kavanaugh because they're all liberal elites, then they start to actually believe, and their memories might even start to be created that it was Brett Kavanaugh, when there's not a shred of damn evidence that it was Brett Kavanaugh. And let me tell you how these things actually work. And this is, this is where I have a little bit of expertise, specifically, on the issue of how rumors and urban legends get life within certain communities. I am incredibly well aware of the arrogance of the news media, the elite news media, because this is an elite news media story. Ronan Farrow vouched for this story back at the time, and it was an embarrassment to him. So now he's invested in it being uh, rehabilitated because uh, the, the reporting on this was a flat-out joke at the time, and it hasn't gotten any better a year or so later. 
But the elite media elite are incredibly arrogant, as are the academic elite. Now, I've been uh, part of and uh, connected to both of these groups. I went to school at Georgetown University, allegedly uh, academic elite. And I have spent a lot of time with a lot of very uh, well-educated, well-connected, and rich people. And a lot of these uh, media elites, too. Let me tell you about an interesting phenomenon that I have seen. These people think that they are different. They think that they are part of a, an elite club that has information that the rest of the world does not possess. And when a rumor gets circulated within their environment, within their circle, within their elite group, it is inherently seen as credible because we're all credible people. We're Yale grads. We're uh, media elites. If other media elites and other Yale grads are saying this happened and it's a popular enough rumor to have gotten to the level of an urban legend or whatever, there must be some, if not total truth to it, because we elites know what we're talking about. We don't lie. We're super smart. We are privy to information that the, the dirty underclass does not have. And so, therefore, if we're talking about it, it must be true. Now, let me give you a good example of this. I could come up with many, but this is the first one that comes to my mind. Uh, I am a, uh, an avid golfer. I've played in a lot of tournament uh, golf nationwide, uh, qualified for national golf championships at the amateur level. I, I have been in contact with a lot of uh, very elite corporate people who play golf. Uh, within the golf world, some of the – Urban legends that I have heard about Phil Mickelson are off the charts. And it's interesting that they are very consistent, but they have slight differences. And I'm not even going to go into them all because I don't believe them. Now, I believe that Phil Mickelson has a gambling problem. I mean, I think he would even agree with that. And I think there's some things that Phil Mickelson has gotten involved with that would have destroyed the career of anybody else. But the media loves Phil Mickelson and his fan base loves Phil Mickelson. But my point on this is... And it's fascinating to me whenever I meet someone who has heard these, these rumors or urban legends about Phil Mickelson. They firmly believe them. Why? Well, because other elite people have told them about it. And the elites know they have the real story. They wouldn't lie to me. This corporate uh, giant wouldn't lie to me about Phil Mickelson doing X, Y, or Z. So it must be true. It's the same phenomenon as what's going on with Brett Kavanaugh and this story at Yale. And, the, and now the media elites are totally invested in rallying and, and circling the wagons and trying to protect this bullcrap narrative that, that they put forward in an attempt to assassinate him when he was up for the Supreme Court. And, of course, liberals are eating it up from a corporate business standpoint, it's good business. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's gotten enormous amount of traffic over the last 24 hours. And of course, that's all that matters in this day and age. Truth doesn't mean shit. It's all about what, what's going to get traffic because these people are all invested in not having been wrong about Brett Kavanaugh. They want it to be true. They want him to be a serial sexual abuser and they want vindication for the people that they blindly supported who were not telling a true story. And I mean, it's incredibly important with regard to this most recent story. And there's nothing new. There's no legitimate new evidence in this, except for one thing, which is a joke. And I'll get to that 
momentarily, but it cannot be repeated enough that the actual victim of this situation, which once again, and you cannot even you're not even allowed to say this, which is part of the problem in in these circumstances. It's not rape. There wasn't even actual physical contact. I'm not defending it. If it happened, it's outrageous and wrong. But exposing yourself is not the same thing as raping a woman. Yet the media now pretends that it is. But okay, the woman who was the victim of this doesn't even say it was Brett Kavanaugh. Now, shouldn't that be, shouldn't that be the first, the first Hurdle you have to get over if you're going to tell a 35-year-old Bigfoot story that the woman who was the victim says, yep, it was Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, that's the first thing that ought to happen. If you can't get over that hurdle, get this the fuck out of here. And not in the New York Times. I mean, this is absurd. It's absurd. And then, you know, there's all sorts of other problems, including, including, this alleged second allegation. This is just amazing that the New York Times embarrassed themselves by doing this. The second allegation that they put into this is from a guy by the name of Max Steyer. Now you're thinking, wait a minute, Brett Kavanaugh assaulted a guy? Brett Kavanaugh exposed himself to a guy? No, 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 no. This Max Steyer apparently told uh, Senate investigators uh, but not the New York Times, interestingly enough, told Senate investigators that when he was at Yale, he saw another episode where Brett Kavanaugh exposed himself to a female. Really? Really? Oh, okay. So, Mac, so Brett Kavanaugh was a serial exposer of his junk to women at Yale, but nobody ever mentioned this. Because in the 80s, you know, this was just accepted behavior at Yale University or Yale College, whatever the hell it is. Yale, this is, this is not the way things were. You would get kicked out of school if you did this, regardless of who you were or whether your granddad went to Yale or whatever. Give me a freaking break. I know because I went to Georgetown. I saw some pretty crazy stuff, but nothing like that. And if I had, they would have gotten expelled regardless of who they were, especially if they were doing it multiple times. So, uh, so immediately I'm like, really? So, so where's the woman, right? Where's the woman that's happened to? She didn't hear that Brett Kavanaugh was up for the Supreme Court? <laughs> what? She didn't hear that he was being accused of all sorts of horrible things? She didn't hear that there was another woman who desperately needed her help in supporting her, the claim that, that uh, Brett Kavanaugh was going around showing his junk to girls at Yale? I don't buy that. That's bullshit. But who's Max Steyer? This is the most amazing part of the New York Times story. Max Steyer is referred to as being part of a D.C. nonprofit who is a thought leader. He's a thought leader, according to the New York Times, who works at a D.C. nonprofit. Now, as an experienced uh, per, uh, a critic of the news media who is able to spot uh, bullshit from a mile away. When I saw that description, I'm like, okay, all right. Uh, BS detector is now on full blast at 11. We're, we're, we're at 11 here. So, so who really is Max Steyer? And sure enough, as is always the case, it turns out Max Steyer is not just a liberal, which 
would have been obvious just from the nonprofit in D.C. I mean, everyone who works at a nonprofit in D.C. is almost always a liberal. But, uh, but by, you know, let's just leave that alone for a second. Max Steyer worked for Bill Clinton's defense team during his impeachment. Now, this is particularly important because you know who worked on the other side for Ken Starr at the time? You guessed it, Brett Kavanaugh. Now, if this story was true, you mean to tell me that Max Steyer didn't go around telling God and everybody, given the nature of the allegations against Bill Clinton, right? So, so he's defending a client who is being accused of lying about having exposed himself to women. That Max Steyer remembers having witnessed Brett Kavanaugh doing the same exact thing to women at Yale. Kavanaugh's on Brett's, on Ken Starr's team, and he never says anything about it? He never says a goddamn thing about it? He would be saying this every single day. They would have made this public to discredit the Ken Starr group. Brett Kavanaugh would have been fired from the Ken Starr team if this was real. And then... There's another interesting tidbit. Max Steyer told this to center investigators. They didn't find it credible. They didn't even bother with this because it looked like trash to them. I mean, we've got a male claiming to have witnessed something he's never said anything about before from 35 years ago. But guess what else? Max Steyer doesn't even do an interview with the New York Times. So... So this alleged bombshell in the New York Times doesn't have Ramirez saying that it was Brett Kavanaugh and doesn't have an interview with the second allegation witness who's not even the victim. Now, come on, people. Can we use our brains? This is garbage. This is, and the New York Times should be embarrassed. And one of the first signs... It's, I've become almost an expert at being able to sniff these things out. The, and it's so funny that liberals get it wrong all the time. When the story for, first broke, I was seeing on Twitter a lot of liberals being pissed at the time, at the Times because the Times wasn't emphasizing the allegations. That the, the Times story was more about Yale's culture and how Kavanaugh was one of the in crowd and Ramirez was not part of the in crowd because after all, her name is Ramirez, right? So she's being discriminated against. And the, and the liberals on Twitter can't figure out, wait a minute, why did you bury the lead, the New York Times? Why aren't you emphasizing that there's this new allegation uh, from this guy named Steyer and you know, that, that, they, that they found a, you know, the Ramirez story to be quote-unquote credible, whatever the hell that means. In other words, they weren't able to complete, we completely 100% disprove that something happened. I have no problem believing something happened. Clearly something happened, but there's zero evidence that Brett Kavanaugh had anything to do with it. So, uh, but I found this hilarious that liberals were uh, all up in arms criticizing the Times. <laughs> Well, here's what really happened. Here's here in the real world what happened. The New York Times has these garbage allegations that they know are going to be newsworthy and popular with their base. But even they don't have the balls to make the news story just about this garbage. So they dress the garbage up in a story about Yale's culture and 
white and and Hispanic and and haves and have-nots. And oh, by the way, within this culture story, we're going to put in some bullshit about uh, uh, these new this new information that you can decide for yourself whether or not it's credible. That's not the way journalism is supposed to work. They they basically did an end round an end around on journalistic ethics here. And that was my first sign this story is bullshit. Because if it was real, that would be the fucking headline. New proof surfaces that Brett Kavanaugh exposed himself to a woman at Yale. That's your headline. But that's not the headline. It's not the headline because it didn't happen and they didn't prove it. They didn't come close to proving it. It's all bullshit. And you know who this helps? You know you know who this helps? It helps Donald Trump. Correct. Because it goes directly into the narrative that he wants. That the news media and the Democrats are totally out of control. That we have lost all sense of reality. That we are that that is now a witch hunt. Speaking of witch hunts, you know, Trump is famous for claiming that the whole Russian investigation was a witch hunt. Remember that, you know? This is a pure and simple witch hunt. Right, right. Uh, Well, that's what this is with Kavanaugh. So this plays right in to his hand. It plays into the media having no credibility. It it plays into this notion that that men are, are under attack. Uh, that every allegation will be believed. This is uh, this is effectively a donation on the part of the New York Times to the reelect Trump campaign, and they got paid for it because the, they got a story that got a lot of traffic. Good job, New York Times. I hope you enjoy Donald Trump's second term because that's where we're headed with this kind of crap. Uh, now, uh, with regard to the news of the day or involving Trump, uh, you know it's funny because a lot of liberals are now saying that. Kavanaugh needs to be impeached. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh, well, whether Donald Trump will be impeached is still an open question. I have been saying for months that Nancy Pelosi is playing a game. And even to my good friend, Congressman John Yarmuth, who's very close to Pelosi and has been in favor of impeachment because of my lobbying, uh, I, I have disagreed with John on Pelosi's position on this. And I think I'm being vindicated. Because this this week, Pelosi said, I'm done talking about impeachment right now in a very hissy fit sort of way. Uh, She's clearly frustrated. She doesn't know what to do. I believe they have chosen a lane on impeachment that pleases absolutely nobody. They have pretended to the base that they're going to get to it. And they have pretended to everyone else that they're not going to do it. And, And I don't see how they've pleased anybody. In fact, I think they've pissed off everybody. And, you know, it's obvious that Adam Schiff, the head of the Intelligence Committee, and Jerry Nadler, the head of the Judiciary Committee, want to impeach Donald Trump. And they're doing everything they possibly can, even though Nancy has at least one of their testicles in a jar on her desk, maybe both of them. There have been some interesting developments in this realm. Adam Schiff issued a very mysterious subpoena this week for a a whistleblower to testify from inside of the White House. And it has been widely interpreted, including by Schiff himself, that Schiff does not know who this person is, that this person must have damaging information either on Donald Trump or on someone very, very high up in the White House for the White House to be reacting in the way that they are and preventing this whistleblower from uh, complying with the subpoena. Now, that's interesting, but we've gone, you know, we've been teased so many times before. I don't want to overreact to it, but I'm 
I'm interested. I want to find out more about that. I'm also curious about the, this report that there is negotiating going on with former Attorney General Jeff Sessions to testify as well. Now, this seems impossible to me. It seems utterly impossible that they're going to get Jeff Sessions to testify against the president uh, you know, when he was the first major political figure to endorse Donald Trump. Now, if they did, and, it, and he was honest, and it was damaging, wow, uh, that could be a game changer. But I just cannot believe that Sessions is going to do that, but at least he's apparently open to it because they're negotiating with him. Uh, if you've listened to this podcast, especially during the Mueller, the height of the Mueller investigation, you know that I am one of the very, very few people who makes the case that the firing of Jeff Sessions is not only the most important act that Trump did during the entire Russian investigation, it might be the most egregious act of obstruction of justice that he did. And it takes a little bit of context to understand why. But at the time that Sessions is fired, the day after the 2018 election, when no one's paying attention, he's holding that back crap crazy press conference and Democrats are having a dance because they won the election. When he does that, the day after the election, after saying on Twitter numerous times he's going to do it because Tr- Sessions did not recuse him because Sessions did recuse himself from the Russian investigation and he should not have recused himself. I mean, Trump couldn't have been more clear about that publicly. You fire him for no other reason than his lack uh, of being willing to do Trump's bidding by not recusing himself from the Russian investigation. I mean, the, the idea that we did not have a firestorm over the president of the United States firing the attorney general because he recused himself properly from an investigation of the magnitude of the Russian uh, probe is just unbelievable to me. It's, it's unbelievable that that's how this went down with no media coverage or hardly any media coverage and no blowback whatsoever. It's just flat out ridiculous. But that's what happened. Well, at the time, it was bad enough because you're firing an attorney general because he recused himself properly. That should have caused massive ethical concerns. But when he gets replaced by Bill Barr, who systematically and proactively diffuses the Mueller investigation conclusions by lying about Mueller's conclusions and withholding the full Mueller report until his false narrative can take hold, and it's done numerous other things that are clearly intended to defend Donald Trump. Now, now we have the full picture. Now we know, oh, oh, wow. Okay, so Sessions got fired because Trump needed an attorney general to kill Mueller's report, and that's what he did. That's why he did it. Even Mueller could not have known this, because when Mueller did his report, obviously Barr hadn't done his spiel yet. The analogy I use is this. You get into, uh, someone divorces you, right? And you think, you think they're cheating on you with person A, right? But you can't prove it. You have a suspicion that this is the reason why your marriage ended. They're cheating on you with person A. You can't prove it at the time. But then six months later, they get married to person A. Now you go, oh, oh, okay, now I get it. Well, that's the way it is with Sessions firing. You suspected it when he got fired. You knew it when Bill Barr did what he did to Robert Mueller. 
Now, I don't know for sure that that's where the investigation is going with Sessions, but that's where I would go. That's where I would go. It would be all about the firing of Jeff Sessions because the firing of Jeff Sessions is the moment that the Russian probe ended and the media was just too stupid and too distracted to figure that out. There's also, uh, speaking of potential articles of impeachment, uh, the emoluments lawsuit, which had been killed previously, has now been given new life by a court. The appeal on that is ongoing. This, to me, is one of the more baffling situations where the Democrats have not been able to do any damage because it could not be more clear-cut that Donald Trump is in violation dramatically of the emoluments clause of the Constitution. Correct. I mean, it's not close. Uh, I mean, and this, to me, one of the biggest mistakes Democrats made on the issue of impeachment is they didn't pursue this immediately. I mean, I'm a big believer if you're going to criticize somebody, you got to at least say what they should have done. The day Democrats took the House of Representatives, they should have started impeachment proceedings on emoluments and campaign finance uh, violations involving Michael Cohen and maybe some abuse of power situations. Frankly, in retrospect, the Sessions firing should have been part of the abuse of power. So all of that should have immediately been out there. They waited too long. Whether Nancy did this on purpose and sabotaged impeachment because she didn't want to go there or not, I don't know yet. But I I am confident that she is playing a game. And it's a game that uh, I think is going to help Trump because uh, he, he probably will not be impeached, if not at least not properly, and uh, if he is, there's going to be a, probably some political cost to that because the timing is all wrong. It's all wrong. No one's going to understand why now. Why now? What are you doing now that's causing impeachment? There's, there has to be a massive bombshell. We've already had massive bombshells that got ignored. Like, for instance, the biggest one of all, uh, Trump was trying to build a tower in Moscow during the campaign while Republican, the Republican nominee for president, and lying about it, and then got his personal lawyer to lie about it to Congress. That's impeachable! God, it's not that difficult. But we've passed that now. That's not new information. We, we live in a world where it's got to be new. And if it's not new, it doesn't matter. A um, couple of other uh, stories that are uh, in the realm of the mysterious that I think could become very uh, important in near future. It, this obviously was the anniversary of 9-11, the 18th anniversary of 9-11 this past week. The DOJ, and the fact that it comes from Bill Barr, makes me suspicious that maybe it's not that big of a deal. But the DOJ has approved a name of a Saudi official that was apparently uh, found to have been in cahoots on the 9-11 attacks to be revealed or be unredacted as part of the victim's attempt to sue Saudi Arabia. This has been a big issue for many years, but, uh, and it's incredibly complex. But it seems very possible. Here's the bottom line. It seems very possible. We're going to learn that there was a member of the Saudi government that was directly involved in the 9-11 conspiracy. And look, it seems to me as if we're, we have such short attention spans and we care so little about what happened in the past that uh, nothing matters anymore. But to me, that's got to matter, right? That's got to matter. I, I, frankly, if that had come out right after 9-11, I was thinking about this the other day. 
you could argue, depending on who the name is, you could argue it might have uh, caused George Bush to not win re-election, given his closeness to the Saudis. Uh, you could you could argue that Trump, with his closeness to the Saudis, could could suffer in theory because of that. Um, I mean, it's it, it's an interesting story that I think could end up blowing up in the next few months. Speaking of Saudi Arabia, they just had a drone attack on uh, a huge number of their oil fields. The United States is saying that Iran is behind this. Iran, of course, is denying this. Uh, you know, Trump will determine. Trump will determine what happened here based upon how nice the Iranians are to him. That's how he will determine whether or not they were actually the source of the drone attack. Who kisses his ass more, the Iranians or the Saudis, will be who uh, he uh, backs in that uh, potentially incredibly important uh, dispute. Uh, There was obviously a Democratic debate this week. Uh, I don't think much changed because of the debate. Joe Biden continued to appear to be rather shaky. Well, oh, God. Uh, you know, watching him, and, and I'm in a very weird position with Joe Biden. I don't really like him, I and mean, he seems like a nice enough guy. I do not like his politics. I think he's a gaffe machine. I, I did a movie in, uh, on the 2008 election when he was elected vice president, criticizing him quite dramatically. Uh, so I'm no Joe Biden fan, but uh, he is the only hope for any semblance of normalcy to return to the White House. And so I find myself somewhat rooting for him. That's how pathetic things have gotten, that I'm rooting for. I mean, that's that right there shows you everything you know. I'm rooting for Joe Biden. That's how pathetic we are now. I mean, really? Really? We're better than that. No, no, we're not. Uh, and so uh, but when I'm watching him, I kind of feel like I'm watching my seven-year-old play soccer. Uh, Grace, uh, my daughter, uh, has never played soccer before, and uh, and she's trying her best, but she's not very good. And at any moment, I feel like she's going to score a goal from the other team. So anything anything that doesn't involve her scoring a goal for the other team, I'm thrilled. Thank God. But you're always on that edge, like, oh, at any moment, this could all go to crap, and we could have a total disaster on our hands. And that's kind of the way it is with Biden. Was there a total disaster on Thursday? No. Uh, in a rational world, in a pre-Donald Trump world where we're so desensitized, I do think that Biden didn't made, made one statement that should have made news. It didn't make much. He actually said nobody should be in jail for a nonviolent crime. Really? Really, Joe? <laughs> nobody should be in jail for a nonviolent crime. It's just flat out ridiculous. <laughs> now, I realize it's not really what he meant, I guess there was some context to the nature of the conversation, but that's what he said. Uh, in, in a former world, pre-Trump world, I think that might have made some more traction, but in the post-Trump world, eh, look, you know, <laughs> his sentence actually made some sense, so we're going to give him a pass. Uh, the biggest, I think, impact of the debate was, one, that there was no movement. So anytime there's no major movement, that's good for the frontrunners, right? Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. Maybe Buttigieg, probably not uh, Kamala Harris because she seems to be fading. But those are the only five people that can win the nomination. So that's the big. The biggest headline is when nothing happens. That's good for the front runners. From again, this theme that seems to be uh, pervading this podcast. The good news for Trump was what Beto O'Rourke did. Beto O'Rourke at a at a at a blatant plea for attention. And this is what happens when you have narcissistic attention whores like Beto O'Rourke 
run for Senate in, in Texas, get tons of positive media coverage, tons of adulation, tons of money, he starts to think he's special. He starts to think he's a god. And then all of a sudden he runs for president and he's getting 1% in the polls and he needs his attention and love fix. So what does he do? He decides that he's going to go all in on taking your guns. All in on taking your guns, which in a rational world wouldn't be that big of a deal because he's not going to be the nominee. But in this case, it is a big deal because Democrats have been trying to say for years All those right-wingers that tell you that we're going to take your guns, they're lying, don't believe them. And here he is in a nationally televised debate saying, hell yeah, literally, hell yeah, I'm going to take your guns. Well, guess what? Now, anybody who had any semblance of a thought, who's a gun lover, right? Any semblance of a thought, any gun lover who didn't really like Trump, was kind of, you know, afraid of his second term, was fed up with all the bullshit of, of, of dealing with Trump and the tweets and the unpresidential behavior and all that. Anybody in that category, and I don't know how many people are in that category, but there's some. Anybody in that category is automatically, who cares about guns, is going to go, you know what? I'm going to put up with it because I don't trust the other side. Because the, uh, O'Rourke just gave away uh, the plan. That's, in their minds, that's what just happened. And there might be some truth to that, that O'Rourke gave away the plan that the plan is to take away your guns. And so even though O'Rourke isn't going to be on the ticket, uh, certainly not now, uh, the, um, the reality is this is going to hurt whoever the Democratic nominee is, and it's going to help uh, Donald Trump hold on to his base. Correct. Now, a couple other things real quick. Uh, speaking of the election, Mitt Romney decided he's not going to endorse anybody. <laughs> Boy, there's a profile in courage. <laughs> Mitt Romney... This is this is what we have as our most courageous senator, the guy who you know has more money than he could possibly ever spend. He's older in life. He's got more fame. He's got a great family. He's got you know in theory nothing to lose, but it's the the old man with the uh, the shrinking balls theory that I I deposit I, I uh, posit on a regular basis on the podcast, which unfortunately turns out to be almost always true. Uh, he's just not going to endorse anybody. He's not going to endorse anybody in the Republican primary. He's not going to, even his friend Bill Weld, uh, he's not going to endorse anybody in the general election. At least that's uh, his current plan. So uh, great job, uh, Mitt Romney. Uh, you know who else is not going to endorse uh, uh, Donald Trump? This was pretty hilarious this week. Do you remember this clip? Uh, look at my African-American over here. Yeah, that guy is not going to be voting for Donald Trump. Uh, in this election. In fact, he's running for Congress here in California as an independent. His name is Greg Cheadle. And the guy who Trump famously referred to as... Uh, Look at my African-American over here. uh, Made some news this week by saying he's done with Trump. He's no longer a Republican. And I have to say, uh, ordinarily, you know, because I don't like Trump, I would take some joy in this. Uh, uh, and this hilarity that, you know, even the guy that Trump points out as his African-American isn't going to be voting for him. I have to say my BS detector is is pretty high on this because I saw an interview with him on why he's decided that he can't be a Republican and can't support Trump anymore. And the first thing he cited was the Colin Kaepernick uh, uh, taking a knee during the national anthem, that he was supporting Kaepernick and that thought that the president was uh, totally wrong on that. Well, first of all, that happened a hell of a long time ago. 
So, so why didn't you announce at the time? Second of all, I'm sorry. You're no conservative. You're no real Republican if you're supporting Kaepernick and that whole sham because uh, Kaepernick contrived that whole deal. Uh, and, I, and that's another argument for another day. But you know, I, I've coached football, covered football. Uh, Kaepernick sucked for three years. Uh, and, and he has been a genius. This worked out way better than he could possibly imagine. He is a genius at, at manipulating this situation. His career was coming to an end, and now he's made more money and gotten more famous and is a hero forever because he was able to come up with an excuse for why he couldn't play football anymore. So congratulations to Colin Kaepernick. But when Greg Cheadle gave that as the, uh, the uh, excuse for why he's leaving, I'm like, okay, so, so you did this because you wanted some media coverage. I got it. All right, fine. Um, <laughs> President Trump, I've always thought, was a Manhattan liberal con man. And he did something this week which is completely consistent with a, a Manhattan liberal. And that is he came out in favor of banning most forms of vaping. Now, I don't smoke. I don't drink. I, I hope my daughters never do so. Uh, you know, I, I don't know much about vaping, uh, but I'm a libertarian at heart. And uh, I do know that, you know, there's other ways of handling situations than banning things. But I also know that the justification he gave, which was that his wife, Melania, told him to be in favor of banning certain types of vaping, would not have gone over if Barack Obama, can you imagine if Barack Obama, who apparently did a lot of weed in his day, uh, had come out in the Oval Office and says, Michelle wants me to ban uh, forms of vaping, and I'm going to do it. How do you think the right wing would have reacted to that? I mean, really, come on. They they, would have gone crazy. Obama would have been destroyed. It would have been the nanny state. This would have been, uh, you know, liberalism, statism, run amok. This would have been Obama as a wuss uh, being uh, pulled around by his wife, uh, Michelle, telling him what to do. Yet Trump does it with almost no blowback on the right. Uh, and you know, to me, this is an indication of, one, the hypocrisy and the double standard on the, on the media and the conservative side, but also what really makes Trump tick. Trump has no problem with statism. No problem with the state controlling your life. No problem with runaway deficits, spending other people's money, uh, picking winners and losers in the economy, ordering via Twitter that American companies not do business with China because of his tariffs. I mean, this is a guy who is a statist. He is a, a wannabe tyrant. He is a Manhattanite, uh, a nanny stater. And yet, uh, you know, his cult just doesn't understand that or doesn't want to accept that. I love the poorly educated. And speaking of his cult, speaking of his cult, there, we have to end uh, <laughs> with a mention of Lou Dobbs. <laughs> Lou Dobbs this week apparently visited the White House and came back with a review of what's going on there uh, that is not able to be parodied. You cannot parody it. Because uh, it was basically like a teenage boy coming back after reporting what it was like to uh, visit the set of the Victoria's Secret fashion shoot. <laughs> that's, basically, that's basically what Lou Dobbs did. And he even changed his sign-off. Lou Dobbs, 
Fox News Channel reporter, a guy who I've been on his show uh, a couple times way, way, way in the past. And let's be clear, Lou Dobbs has changed his political ideology multiple times to conform to the outlet that he was working for at the time. So he's a whore. I mean, he is a first-class, total whore. And he is whoring harder than ever this week. This was his actual send-off after having met with uh, Trump in the White House. Have a great weekend. The president makes such a thing possible for us all. <laughs> you cannot be serious. <laughs> oh, my gosh. This is going to all look so bad in history. History is so not going to look good on, on what has happened here. There's so many people who have humiliated themselves, uh, but none more so. <laughs> than Lou Dobbs uh, with that particular example. As is always the case, uh, we end each edition of the Individual One podcast with an update on our uh, percentages. Again, please, no wagering. Uh, The percentages of Trump uh, finishing his or not finishing his first term in office and the percentages of him being reelected, still no major change. Uh, I'm going to stick with the 10% chance that he does not finish his first term in office, 40% chance that he is reelected. I continue to believe that he's going to probably face Elizabeth Warren in the general election where he has a very good chance of being reelected, especially if the economy uh, stays strong. If the economy stays strong and he's up against Elizabeth Warren and nothing else changes between now and November, I think he would be the favorite to win that race. And uh, and he might win fairly, not easily, but, you know, it, it might not be that close. It might not be. Uh, you know, uh, by a whisker. Um, I still believe Biden beats him, but I, I, it's hard for me to imagine how Biden gets the nomination still unscathed enough to where he's able to take advantage of his current domination in the national and state polls against Donald Trump. So we'll stick at a 40% chance for Trump's reelection based upon the fact that Biden still could be the Democratic nominee. That'll do it for this edition of the podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at individual the number one pod. My name is John Ziegler, uh, and uh, you're listening to the Global Story Network. And please remember, have a great weekend. The president makes such a thing possible for us all. 